0: Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We are celebrating Black History Month this week with some of the most incredible scholars and artists working. Today, we're going to be chatting with the writer Hanif Abdurraqib about his new book, A Little Devil in America, in which he unpacks the cultural and historical impact of black performances. Then we're going to talk to Clint Smith. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic. We're going to talk about his latest book, How the Word is Past, which tours landmarks and monuments that have shaped the collective conversation around slavery. Then we'll hear some music from the genre-bending powerhouse Melanie Charles. She's going to perform a reimagining of Marlena Shaw's song, Woman of the Ghetto, from her new album, Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women. That is the plan. It's going to be a fascinating show this week, so make sure you stick around for it. It all gets started right
1: after this.
0: Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well this week. I am wondering if you are ready to play another round of station location identification examination. I am raring to go. Let's do it. Okay. For uh, newbies, this is the part of the show where I give Elena some uh, background detail on a city where Livewire is on the radio and you try to figure out the city that I am talking about. And it's fun to play along at home. Okay. This city was home to the first black-owned shipyard in the United States, as well as the residents of, among others, Thurgood Marshall, Frederick Douglass, Isaac Myers, Billie Holiday, and Cab Calloway.
2: Baltimore,
0: Maryland. (laughs) Baltimore, Maryland. First try. That's where we're on WYPR each week. Nice job. You are getting really good at this. Like, you are, I mean, you're taking no time to get these answers. Billy
2: Holiday. I mean, just the pride of Baltimore.
0: By the time I got to Billy Holiday, I was like, okay, if we, she doesn't know and this. Frederick
2: Douglass, too, because he took that, that very famous walk to his freedom, right, from Baltimore.
0: Yes, yeah. exactly. So, shout out to everybody listening in Baltimore and Ooh. all over the country to this week's Live Wire. Should we get started? Let's do it. All right, take it away. <laughs>
2: From PRX, it's LifeWire. This week, cultural critic, Hadith abdur
1: I mostly wanted to write a book where the praise and joy was centered and immovable. I cannot correct the course of America, and I don't know if I have much interest in it, honestly.
2: And writer, Clint Smith.
1: There were more homages in this majority
4: black city to enslavers than there were enslaved people.
2: With music from Melanie Charles. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of LiveWire,
0: Lou Burbank! Hey, thank you so much, Elena. Welcome, everyone, to a special edition of LiveWire. We're celebrating Black History Month this week, so we are going to change up our format a little bit. This is normally the part of the show where we do our best news segment, but if you are just jonesing for some best news, you can go over to the LiveWire podcast where we have a whole new podcast called "The Best News We Heard This Week," where you can get all of your best news needs met. In the meantime, let's get right to our first guest. He's a poet, essayist, cultural critic, and MacArthur Fellow. Those are those genius grants, which still waiting, still waiting <laughs> by the phone to hear my call. Give it it's time. Not yet happened. It's
2: gonna happen.
0: He has been on our show four times. First, to talk about his debut essay collection, "They Can't Kill Us Till They Kill Us." That was back in 2018. Then he came on in 2019 to talk about his essay collection, Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest. Then we had him on to talk about his website project, 68 to 05, where he went back and just traced the lineage of all kinds of songs and playlists and gave a bunch of cool context to that. We are clearly big fans of this guy. That's why he's on the show roughly every two months. Uh, his latest book was a National Book Award finalist, and it was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, NPR, and many other places. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Hanif Abdurraqib, recorded in March of last year. Hanif Abdurraqib, welcome back to Livewire.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Was there a particular performance, Hanif, that you saw or were thinking about that kind of sparked the idea in your mind for this book?
1: What's funny is uh, this book, as it is completed, is not the book that it was as it started. I initially, inspired by a somewhat odd and intense trip to Memphis that sent me into this kind of existential crisis about appropriation and Black artists dying without receiving their proper due. Uh, I was thinking a lot about Isaac Hayes and Al Green. I wanted to write a book about minstrelsy and tie it to this history of appropriation and dislocating Black artists from their work. But as I was working on the book, I realized that taking that approach was doing this thing that was even unintentionally. To take that approach meant that I was centering whiteness like Mm -hmm. because I kind of had to, you know, in order to tell some of the stories I was trying to tell. And I thought, well, that's not, exactly fun for me mm-hmm. at this stage of my like writing life or not exciting for me. And I didn't want to write a book that felt hard. I wanted to write a book that felt exciting. And um, around the time that I was thinking about switching modes in the book, I was on the phone with a friend of mine and they were like, casually, just very casually, like, I have this hard drive of Soul Train episodes, almost every <laughs> episode from the 70s to the 80s. And they were like, "That's all I heard." They were. They went on to ramble about like what they were trying to do with it, it. and I was like, "No, no, send it to me. Like, I would love it. Like, you know, I'll pay you for it. I'll pay for shipping. Just send it to me." Mm. And I began watching hours of Soul Train, Mm. like literal, like hundreds of hours, almost had to be. And in that process, I think I tapped into the center of what became this book, which is my hope is that it's celebratory and not only daunting, or not only painful, or not only historically intense, but Also something that really seeps deep into this idea of celebration without any other pretense. Well, that was, I mean,
0: you you talk about the Soul Train line in the book, which as a kid growing up seeing Soul Train, I just thought, oh, this is a fun dance thing that's happening. But there's a (laughs) lot of layers to it, particularly for, for the black folks that were on Soul Train.
1: Yeah. And I mean, along with that. So I had no idea. You know, the essay that opens the book parallels these soul train lines to the Great Depression era dance marathons, Mm -hmm. which I had never heard of. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know those existed. And a friend of mine, different friend, um, he like, you know, got me hip to them. And then he sent me a folder of photos from those dances, which I don't know if y'all have ever seen. Yeah, they're nuts. They are just like, they're like alarming. They're really jarring. They're kind of beautiful in a way. Um, But like the whole circumstance of these marathons is like messed up. So I don't want to romanticize it too much. Um, But I got so captivated by just the brutality yet gentleness of it.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Because you hear dance contest, dance marathon. It just seems like people are going to do the flat foot flugie for six hours. (laughs) And I mean, it was a whole way for people, as you write in the book, to just try to maybe get a little bit of money or put food on the table. I mean, it was it was
1: grueling and very dangerous. Yeah. And in some cases, one, people were dancing for like thousands of hours.
2: Mm-hmm. Months. And in
1: some cases, if you came in second, you got nothing. So if you danced for 1,457 hours, you won. You won a cash prize, all this stuff. If you dance for 1,456 hours and 57 seconds, you got nothing. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, of course... You know, you were sheltered for that time and fed for that time, but you were leaving empty-handed in terms of in terms of like prize money that could sustain you for a little bit longer. And there was something so horrifying about that to me that it was very much a test of very literal endurance. You know, it wasn't like it was like everyone else drops and you're the only one left, and so you're you're not moving towards. A set time frame, you're moving towards everyone else's illumination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to think about that and to contrast that with the kind of very different emotional tenor of the soul train line, both of them requiring partnering in a way that made me think a lot about what it is to be tethered to someone for either a long time or a short time. Um, that really changed the scope of the book immediately. Like when I get when I dove into those parallels, the book became a different book. We're talking to Hanif Abdul rakib His uh, latest book is
0: A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance. There was uh, a a character in this book, somebody named William Henry Lane, a.k.a. Mm. Master Juba, who I was unfamiliar with before reading the book. Can you talk about who who he was and kind of where he fit into black performance?
1: Yeah, Master Juba was a black dancer who, um, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, won dance contests. Um, throughout the United States and and made a living um, as a minstrel performer, yes, but also just as, as a great dancer who would often get put up against white dancers, you know, like Irish dancers especially, and just wipe them out, you know, so he could kind of mimic any style of dance and then excel at it better than the people who perhaps originated it, you know, and like many of the black performers in the book, you know, his story is one that is perhaps not as uh, celebrated throughout history. But he was also immortalized a bit by Charles Dickens.
0: Mm -hmm. Could you read a little bit from the, the chapter 16 Ways of Looking at Blackface?
1: Yeah, this is from the essay in the book, 16 Ways of Looking at Blackface. This is section seven. When I say that black performers used to wear blackface while performing in minstrel shows, I will not give you what you want. I will not give you the metaphor that ties it all to how easy it is to switch one's black self into all the things America imagines but doesn't want. I will not talk about crows or blackbirds or feathers or wings. I have no image of a night sky and a row of white teeth. You've had enough metaphors, and I've got a sneaking suspicion that's how we got here in the first place. The we being you and I, reader, or the we being you and I, America. When performing in southern towns in the 1860s and 1870s, all black minstrel troops were forced to stay in character, even offstage, dressed in slave rags and smiling from ear to ear while being shot at by white audiences on their way out of town. But this was the only way for white people to take in what they came to view as real African-inspired dance and not what had come to be seen as the imitations done by white dancers. Consume what you can never become and then kill it before it continues to remind you. And so, none of us deserve the metaphor here but to say that black performers used to wear blackface when performing for white audiences so that nothing but the movements of their feet might be present in the room, everything else too black to be visible.
0: This is Live Wire from PRX. We are listening to a conversation we had with the writer Hanif Abdul-Rakib about his book, A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance. Uh, we have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of LiveWire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at LiveWire, Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of probably a 501c3 they don't let me near any of the paperwork Mm -mm. or bookkeeping and it's really better that way point is we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members and we would love it if you could join us in that right now plus there are all kinds of sweet perks including uh special discounted tickets to live recordings on-air shout outs exclusive content Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this.
2: If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status.
0: Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're Mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWare. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you.
3: Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use Livewire at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to ZBiotics.com slash LiveWire and use the code LiveWire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to ZBiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times.
0: Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are listening back to our interview with Hanif Abdurraqib about his book A Little Devil in America: Notes in Praise of Black Performance. We recorded this last year. Take a listen. I think this is the third book of yours that I've read and it seemed to me like it was the most personal. I felt like I learned the most about your growing up and and your experience in the world. Is this your most personal book? yet that you've written as far as including yourself in the, in the writing.
1: That's so funny. I've heard that a lot. People have said that a lot, but this actually feels to me, uh, like my, one of my least person, I mean, like Hmm. for me, it doesn't get much more personal than a fortune for your disaster was, Mm, you know, like that was, uh, even if people, I know it's poems and there's like, you know, the speaker in the poem and the person, but I think that, that book is like the, the veil is very Mm thin. Um, And I also think, and maybe this is just because of the emotional place I was in at the time of working on it, but I think that They Can't Kill Us is just a really personal book. Uh. It's weird because I'm sure if I spent time with this as other people did, I would, I think the parts of this that are personal are way more honed Mm -hmm. than the other parts of, you know, I think like talking about my relationship with. My Brother at the End, for example, is Mm -hmm. a much more honed and thoughtful execution of the personal Mm. than I think I'd ever gotten in any other book. And so there's ways that I think the personal in this book is more visceral. Uh But I do think that I hide behind a lot of just pure excitement for the telling of these stories.
2: Yeah, I think it must be something about the connection between that significant emotion about the units of pop culture that you're talking about and then the swinging away from research to provide just small... Bits like doing the dozens on the bus, right? Or, yeah. you know, this is what it was like in the forest, you know, across the street from where I grew up.
0: Or moonwalking, you know, at, at a right. mosque. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: It's just that difference in the shift from the research over that it just feels like the detail just is so, it's it's so amplified, I think. And then also just that incredible emotion, like the case to to give flowers to Mary Clayton while she still can receive them on this earth. Those things are, for me, what felt like a person was really speaking to me.
1: Yeah, I do think, if there is one thing I think I've grown as a writer, it is that kind of transferring registers in in information delivery. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, I think They Can't Kill Us, which is a book I still love and I'm proud of, obviously. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard for me to pull back from like, here's my personal story, and here's mm-hmm. my personal life, and here's a personal anecdote, um, to offer some more concrete things, and um, Even in Go Ahead in the Rain, I found myself wrestling with that. But this book, it came so easy to me to kind of Mm. shift the registers of information delivery Mm -hmm. where it's like I can really weave comfortably in and out of the heavily researched or trying to bring people to a place where they can visualize the thing that I visualized and then occasionally nudge nudge them to remind them that this is a real person telling the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, You dedicate this book to Josephine Baker.
0: Uh, Why did you choose her?
1: Well, I, I love Josephine Baker a great deal. The title comes from Josephine Baker. It's, it's a fragment of a longer sentiment from her speech on the March of Washington. I was going to dedicate the book to Miss Toni Morrison, who, who I love a great deal and who just means – I mean, people who know my work a little, even a little bit know how much Miss Morrison means to me. But um, I felt so conflicted. You know, I was like, what if this is – hopefully this is not the best work I will ever do. And I don't know if I want to have Toni Morrison's name – Oh. There,
0: in that case. I never thought of you that, know? the implications of, of of the book dedication. Yeah. And, and if that's And I good. say that,
1: I say that as someone who believes that this is the best book I've ever written, mm-hmm. like truly. And the book I feel very good about. But I was still like, but I hope, you know, I'm still in my 30s. Like I hope I'm not I hope this isn't it for me. <laughs> but also to not take anything away from Josephine Baker, she's so important to the engine of this book. Mm. Um not just the title and not even just the essay on her, but this idea of honoring a full life. Josephine Baker's full life often does not get, um, you know, she gets categorized by this era of her life. Mm. And you know what's so fascinating to me is that you can go on YouTube and watch 50 years worth of Josephine Baker performances. Mm. Like there's footage from 1925 and there's footage from her final shows in the mid-70s. And there's footage of everything in between. And that is remarkable to me. Like I can't, believe that 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 there's this much of an archive uh, by a single performer and I found myself so much more fascinated by the performances when she was a little older like performing in Paris in the 70s Mm -hmm. where she couldn't move as well but she still had impeccable crowd control (laughs) just with her voice and her tone and her like you know her small move her outfits and so you know I was thinking about the celebration of a full life and not just the most scandalous parts or not Mm -hmm. the parts where someone is at their most mobile and capable of serving an audience. But Josephine Baker who showed up to the March on Washington in her, the uniform of the French resistance Mm. and spoke, you know, like that was, um, there was a real, there was a real propulsion that I found in the life of Josephine Baker that, that brought me to the book. And so um, that was my way of showing some small gratitude. Um the the last chapter of the book
0: uh is is sort of dedicated or centered around a punk band, F U Pay Us. I'm
1: wondering yeah. why
0: that's where you where you kind of wanted to land this
1: flight, uh and why that band was important to you. I love that band. Um, you know, they're not as active as they once were, and their window was kind of small, but and their members have done many, a great many other things. Um but I wanted to write about rage again. So I think if they can't kill us until they kill us, I read an essay about black rage. But I didn't, you know, if I go back and read it now, I often think, gosh, I think I need, I would have done some things differently. And then when I saw that show, the FU Pay Us show, um, and I saw how quickly rage was transmitted into love, mm-hmm. or how quickly rage and love were two vehicles kind of on the same you know, on the same highway, just sharing the same lane simultaneously. It really unlocks something for me in the understanding of um, what drives me to stay in Columbus, what drives me to organize in Columbus, what drives me to be among the people in Columbus and not separate or build a hierarchy around my presence here, any of that stuff. And I wanted to kind of return to this idea of rage as as I learned through that show and as I learned through that group. Uh, this is probably an impossible
0: question to answer or maybe a little bit reductive, but I, I just wanted, is there an overarching statement that that you're hoping to make with this book about, uh, you know, black performance in, in this country in particular and, and how it should be thought of, how it should be regarded?
1: Uh, yeah, not really. Only because I don't want to be prescriptive, mm. but I mostly wanted to write a book where the praise and joy was centered and immovable. Mm. And that was it. I cannot correct the course of America and I don't know if I have much interest in it, honestly. Um, you know, all of our time here is limited and uh, I am not going to be the person who corrects the course of America's mess. But I think what I can do is say, gosh, like, isn't Mary Clayton wonderful? You know? Like, shouldn't we return to more than just the one Mary Clayton performance that has been pushed upon us for mm. for a long time? Or I can say, like, isn't playing a game of spades like a performance? Oh, I love that. Essay. These kind of things.
0: Yeah. I loved what you said in that chapter two, where I think you said, you're not the best spades player, but you're the person who's <laughs> most into the game happening. Like, that is yeah. like that's like, you need that element in any kind of, you know, get together.
1: Yeah. I mean, and to be clear, I'm not the worst. I'm just not. Um, I mean, I write about it in the piece, but I think my undoing is that I'm just too eager. And I think spades requires a patience the kind of thoughtfulness and i just don't i mean i have the thoughtfulness but definitely not the patience mm. so i'm always throwing out cards too early which <laughs> kind of upsets the trajectory of a game mm. and uh dismantles a plan with my partner you, and all that kind of you stuff
2: you play ahead of the beat as they say
1: <laughs> i do put definitely like for sure
0: well um uh, hanif this book is 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 really uh, just an amazing piece of work and it was so fun to read um, it really is celebratory. It really is joyous, even though it also describes an experience um, that at times can be very painful. So congratulations on this book. It's really incredible.
1: Always good to see y'all. Thanks for having me.
0: That was the great Hanif Abdurraqib, right here on Livewire. His book, A Little Devil in America Notes in Praise of Black Performance was just named a finalist for the 2021 National Book Critics Circle Award. I mean, that was that the last award that this book needed for the EGOT. I think yes. Yeah. I
2: think it's just the Tony is
0: left. I'm sure Hanif will get a Tony before he's all done. He's incredibly talented.
2: I would watch that musical. I tell you, I would. Yeah,
0: go check out A Little Devil in America if you haven't already. It's uh, quite the book. Hey, special thanks this week to Carol Gabrielli and Vicki Ritenauer of Portland, Oregon. Carol and Vicki are part of the LiveWire member community, and they are generously supporting us with a donation each month, which is huge, because without those donations from folks like Carol and Vicki, we would not be able to do LiveWire. So we really appreciate them. A big thanks to Carol and Vicki for supporting the show this week. You're listening to Live Wire from PRX. We are celebrating Black History Month this week on the show. Our next guest is a poet, also a staff writer at The Atlantic. The New York Times calls his latest book, How the Word is Passed," an extraordinary contribution to the way we understand ourselves. Entertainment Weekly calls it a history of slavery in this country unlike anything you've read before. I can attest to that. It became a number one New York Times bestseller was long-listed for the National Book Award, and Barack Obama named it one of his very favorite books of the year. So let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Clint Smith. We recorded this in June of last year. Clint Smith, welcome back to LiveWire. It's good to be back. Yeah, uh, we missed you. This book is, is a really incredible piece of writing and research. Uh, what were you trying to understand uh, for yourself? when you started working on this.
4: Yeah, so so this book began in earnest in 2017, in the month of May, um, over the course of several weeks when uh, three different Confederate statues in my hometown in New Orleans came down, a statue to Robert E. Lee, PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, all leaders of the Confederacy. And I was watching these statues come down, these statues that had been part of the iconography of my uh, childhood and part of the landscape of my childhood. And, and thinking about what it meant that there were more homages in this majority black city to enslavers than there were enslaved people. right? Like, What does it mean that in order to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard? What does it mean that in order to get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Highway? What does it mean that my middle school was named after a Confederate leader? That my parents live on a street named after somebody who owned 150 enslaved people? That I would go on tours when I was a child of plantations and nobody would say the word slavery? Um, and how does that happen in this place uh, and and what are the implications of that? you know what because we know that memorials and monuments and historical landmarks and and the names of streets and the names of schools are not merely symbols and they are not merely names, they are reflections of stories that a society tells itself, and those stories embed themselves into the narratives. That shape our collective memory and understanding of a place, and and those narratives shape public policy, and public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. And so, I wanted to to understand how my own hometown was sort of thinking about and and discussing or failing to discuss its relationship to the history of slavery. And then I kind of broadened it out and and just got really interested in how uh, different places across the country, as a whole, and even across the ocean. Um, reckon with their own relationship to this history. Is it something that they confront directly? Is it something that they run from? Is it, are they doing something in between? Um, and I kind of went on this four-year journey uh, that led me to uh, dozens of places, but eight of which I document in the book, um, that is uh, considering the ways that this country is a sort of patchwork of experiences um, and a patchwork of stories when it comes to how we tell the story of slavery and the way that it shaped the contemporary landscape of inequality. I thought it was interesting that the title of this book is "How the Word is Passed: A
0: Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America." Mm. Uh, that read to me as uh, signaling this is not just something in the Deep South. This mm. goes up to Manhattan. This really—I mean—this
4: entire country is affected by this legacy. Absolutely, and you know, most of the places in the book are uh, in the South. Um, given that I grew up in the South, given that the history of slavery. Uh, Is is saturated um, in the South given the history of the Confederacy. Uh, But I also didn't want the reader to, uh, as some do, um, fall into the trap of thinking that this was something that was singularly a Southern problem. And that's why I have a chapter on. New York City. That's why I have a chapter on even Texas, right? Texas is some, a place that is in the South, but oftentimes when people think of Texas, it's not in connection to slavery. It's in connection to, you know, cowboys and Westerns and um, thinking about, you know, Texas as its sort of own independent entity um, that is somehow not linked to this history that it is actually deeply linked to. And even, you know, going to, as I mentioned, uh, across the ocean, I went to Dakar, Senegal, because I was spending all this time at plantations and cemeteries and all these places here. And I got increasingly curious about how the story of slavery is told from the place where the transatlantic slave trade began, right? Like how are young West African students learning about slavery and and what is the site of memorialization for the, the, the place of departure for enslaved people and captured Africans? How do they tell that story and how is that in conversation with um, the place where they ended up and their destination, which is these these plantations, and so I wanted to put all of these places in conversation with one another in order to to create a, a sort of fuller survey of what slavery was uh, and and how people continue to tell the story or or fail to tell the story of what it was. This is Livewire.
0: We're talking to Clint Smith. His new book is How the Word Is Passed. Um, There's a part of this book that talks about what it was like for you to have so much of the Confederate world thrust upon you. Um, And and that's actually based on a poem that you wrote about about
4: New Orleans and growing up there. Could you read that for us? Yeah. So, you know, as someone who writes across genre um – I'll think that something begins as a poem and then it will uh, demand uh, a different form, uh, demand more space. Um, And so that was kind of what happened here. And so this is a poem that I wrote at the beginning of the process of writing this book. And I think this poem gave me clarity about what I was trying to do and and why these questions felt so so proximate and and so pertinent to me. Growing up, the iconography of the Confederacy was an ever-present fixture of my daily life. Every day on the way to school, I passed a statue of PGT Beauregard riding on horseback, his Confederate uniform slung over his shoulder, and his military cap pulled far down over his eyes. As a child, I did not know who PGT Beauregard was. I did not know he was the man who ordered the first attack that opened the Civil War. I did not know he was one of the architects who designed the Confederate battle flag. I did not know he led an army predicated on maintaining the institution of slavery, what I knew— that he looked like so many of the other statues that ornamented the edges of this city. These copper garlands of a past that saw truth as something that should be buried underground in silence by the soil. After the war, the sons and daughters of the Confederacy reshaped the contours of treason into something they could name as honorable. They called it the Lost Cause, and it crept its way into textbooks that attempted to cover up a crime that was still unfolding. They told us that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man, guilty of nothing but fighting for the state and the people that he loved, that the Southern flag was about heritage and remembering those slain fighting to preserve their way of life. But see, the thing about the lost cause is that it's only lost if you're not actually looking. The thing about heritage is that it's a word that also means I'm ignoring what we did to you. I was taught the Civil War wasn't about slavery, but I was never taught how the declarations of Confederate secession had the promise of human bondage carved into its stone. I was taught the war was about economics, but I was never taught that in 1860 the four million enslaved black people were worth more than every bank, factory, and railroad combined. I was taught the Civil War was about states' rights, but I was never taught how the Fugitive Slave Act could care less about a border and spell Georgia and Massachusetts the exact same way. It's easy to look at a flag and call it heritage when you don't see the black bodies buried behind it. It's easy to look at a statue and call it history when you ignore the laws written in its wake. I come from a city abounding with statues of white men on pedestals and black children playing beneath them, where we played trumpets and trombones to drown out the Dixie song that still whistled in the wind. In New Orleans, there are over 100 schools, roads, and buildings named for confederates and slaveholders. Every day... Black children walk into buildings named after people who never wanted them to be there. Every time I returned home, I would drive on streets named for those who would have wanted me in chains. Go straight for two miles on Robert E. Lee. Take a left on Jefferson Davis. Make the first right on Claiborne. Translation, go straight for two miles on the general who slaughtered hundreds of black soldiers who were trying to surrender. Take a left on the president of the Confederacy who made the torture of black bodies the cornerstone of his new nation. Make the first right on the man who permitted the heads of rebelling slaves to be put on stakes and spread across the city in order to prevent the others from getting any ideas. What name is there for this sort of violence? What do you call it when the road you walk on is named for those who imagined you under a noose? What do you call it when the roof over your head is named after people who would have wanted the bricks to crush you? That's Clint Smith.
0: His new book is How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. Those are really difficult words to hear. Um, I can only imagine for you... uh, the experience of researching this book and of really immersing yourself in the trauma of, of, of enslaved people in this country,
4: what was that like for you just emotionally? And like, how are you doing? I mean, there were certainly difficult moments. Um, you know, I think anytime you are deeply engaged in the historiography of slavery um, and, 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 engaged intimately with the stories of those who were enslaved and and their testimonies of, of the conditions that they lived in. It can certainly be despair inducing, but it what I always tell people is that there's also a lot of power in it. And I think part of what, part of what animated this book and animates so much of my work is that I remember growing up as like a young kid in new Orleans and being inundated with all of these messages about why, Black people lived in the conditions that we did. And, you know, I was always told that New Orleans is the murder capital of the nation and we incarcerate more people per capita than China and Iran and uh, Russia and all these authoritarian regimes. And implicit within that is this idea that, like, look at this majority black city with these black people who can't control themselves, who are violent, who are enmeshed in poverty uh, because of their own failures. And I feel like growing up, I was never given the tools or the language or the framework or the history with which to understand how a city like New Orleans came to look the way that it does. And if you aren't given those, then you begin to mistake the poverty or the violence or the disparities that certain communities experience as somehow being a result of something that those communities have done wrong, rather than the result of generations of compounding policies that have created those conditions. One of my favorite essays is by James Baldwin. um, And it's not one of his more famous ones, but it's one that means a lot to me. And it's called A Talk to Teachers. And he wrote it in 1963 uh, based on a speech that he gave to a group of New York City educators. And he says a lot of amazing stuff in there. But one of the things that he says is he's like the role of the teacher is to help the young black child understand that even though the world tells them over and over again, that they are criminal, it is in fact the society that created the conditions that that child is growing up in through no fault of their own, that is in fact criminal, right? And it's like a very simple, intuitive thing, but, but there are so many young Black children, I feel like I was one of them in many ways, who grow up being told over and over again all the things that are wrong with you, all the things that are wrong with people who look like you, all the things that are wrong with your community. You know, in, in many ways, I'm writing to a young, younger version of me and trying to give myself a sense of the history that wasn't that long ago.
2: One of the things that I had this... Uh, I mean, it wasn't an aha moment because you told it to me. So one of the things I learned from the book was this this idea that white supremacy creates numbness as much as it creates violence. Hmm. You go to so many museums and commemorative sites in the book. In what ways does that kind of public historical practice have the opportunity to like pierce that numbness?
4: I mean, I think just... In terms of numbers and logistically, I mean, you know, a place like, uh, you know, the Whitney Plantation that I go to, uh, which is this really remarkable plantation museum in Louisiana. And it's, it's so important because it is the only museum in Louisiana or the only plantation in Louisiana that centers the lives of enslaved people and the stories of enslaved people, which, which shouldn't be a remarkable thing because these are plantations. They are sites of intergenerational torture and, and chattel bondage but it is surrounded by a sort of constellation of plantations where people have weddings, where people are using the slave cabins as as bridal suites, where people are taking selfies in front of the homes of former enslavers. Um, and the Whitney is a place that fundamentally rejects that idea. It fundamentally rejects the idea that a plantation can and should be anything other than, one, an homage to the enslaved people who lived on and cultivated and built that land, and then, two, a recognition that it was a site of torture and exploitation over the course of generations for the people who live there. And I think that part of what I wanted to lift up in this book was the important role that public historians and public sites play um, in helping to shape these discussions for people who, for a variety of reasons, might not uh, be inclined to or have the capital to or the resources to sit down and, and read um, you know, a book by a professor at Harvard or Yale. Um, but, but those books are important because then they shape what these tours look like. And and I wanted to just sort of tell the story of the various people who are doing that remarkable work. As we were getting the microphone
0: set up and starting everything, we could hear your son, Clint, running yeah. around. <laughs> I'm just curious, you know, what are you going to tell him about slavery when he's old enough to have that conversation or when he
4: asks you about it? What I'll tell him is, is what I believe and what I think about often um, is – that from the moment enslaved people arrived on these shores, people were fighting for freedom and people were fighting for liberation. And you know, oftentimes people will ask me questions about like, are you hopeful? What do you you know, will things change? And, and the way I think about it is that I'm part of a, a lineage um of people uh and come from ancestors who who were fighting against the existence of an institution for 250 years that ultimately, and ultimately they won, right? Ultimately slavery was abolished because of the work enslaved people had done across generations. But the vast majority of people who spent their lives to different degrees fighting against slavery never got a chance to see that, right? Like they never got a chance to see or experience freedom, but it's a reminder that we don't fight for what's right and we don't try to build a better world simply so we can experience the fruit of of that labor. We build a better world and we fight and we chip against this wall, right? And we don't know how thick the wall is. We don't know what the other, where the other side of it is. But we know that us chipping away at it means the people coming after us will have less to chip away at. And ultimately, there will be enough people across generations chipping away at this proverbial wall that ultimately somebody is going to, you know, hit the wall uh, to keep the metaphor going and, and see light on the other side. And, and that's how I think of, of the the work that so many people do now with regard to mass incarceration, with regard to immigration, with regard to policing, with regard to climate change. You know. So when I tell him about slavery, I'm going to tell him about all the people who, who gave their lives to make his life possible.
0: Well, it seems to me this book takes a pretty big chunk out of that wall. Uh, The book is How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. Clint Smith, thanks so much for coming on LiveWire. Thank you all for having me. That was Clint Smith right here on LiveWire. His book, How the Word is Passed, is available now. Uh, It was also named as a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, (laughs) but in a different category than Hanif Abdurraqib. So it's like you don't have to pick one or the other. Mm-mm. They could, they could both win.
2: Yeah, you could favor them both. I think the two of them are friends too. So they were grew up as poets together. So.
0: <laughs> I know we were talking about this in regards to Hanif Abdurraqib's book, but the same thing for Clint's book, How the Word is Passed. The awards for this book and the recognition that it started to receive pretty much immediately was just stunning. And for a book that is about a very serious topic, you know, Mm -hmm. and a topic that we really need a reckoning with in this country, for it to sell as many copies as it has Mm -hmm. and to be read by as many people is really an incredible testament to just how good this book is.
2: It's so well made and it's such a game changer. I'm so glad
0: I read it. Yeah. Do check out How the Word is Passed if you haven't already. All right. This is Live Wire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. Right over there, that's Elena Passarello. We have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we are going to hear some really incredible music that blends jazz, soul, and R&B from Melanie Charles. So stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one of a kind handcrafted tea blends like Cinnamon Churro Chai and Blueberry Cream Earl Grey. Use the code Livewire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Live Wire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Our musical guest this hour hails from Brooklyn and has spent the past few decades blending jazz, soul, and R&B in ways that have caught the attention of none other than the New York Times, NPR's Tiny Desk, SZA, and the Gorillaz, among others. Her latest album, Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women, pays homage to black women in music and also breathes new energy into works by Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughan, among others. It's Melanie Charles here on LiveWire. Take a listen to this, our conversation we recorded with Melanie last year. Melanie Charles, welcome to LiveWire. Woohoo! Hi! <laughs> um, I have really been enjoying your music it's just so hard to describe because it, it just – I feel like you bring in so many different elements. Uh, one of them, uh, you're a flautist, which you just don't – you don't see a lot in 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 music these days outside of maybe the classical space. When did you start playing flute?
5: I started playing flute around junior high school, actually. I went to IS-318 um, in Brooklyn. Actually, it's the same junior high that Jay-Z went to, fun Whoa. fact. Oh, Whoa. But not at the same time, obviously. He's right. a few years older than me, um. and he nota-
0: he notably uses flute in Big Pimpin'.
5: <laughs> Maybe there's, there's a, a connection. connection. I I guess so. Maybe there's something there. But yeah, yeah, like at that time, I was doing a lot of the Miss America talent competition pageants and stuff like I grew up in like talent show pageant world and when it came time to choose our instruments I was out of class I was I was in one of those competitions so by the time I got to school they stuck me with the flute and I was so upset like I wanted saxophone or trumpet and they were like look all we have is flute so deal with it um but of course I ended up falling in love with the instrument so yeah it started back then I started classically trained I was playing in the orchestra I also doubled on piccolo as well so yeah with time i found a way to incorporate my flute with the other styles of music that i'm doing
0: the the title of this album is y'all don't really care about black women which is um a pretty provocative title and i think it's sort of right in there what what the message is that you're that you're looking to express i'm wondering how you how you arrived at the decision to name the, the album that
5: So, you know, when Verve Records approached me to do this remix project, you know, they have a Verve remix series that they do. And usually they just get different producers, DJs to come in and flip um, songs. But of course, me being the artsy person that I am, I wasn't doing regular remixes. I was really doing reimaginings. And, you know, by the time it came for me to start choosing the songs, it was during the lockdown. It was around the time that Brianna was shot and killed. Mm -hmm. Brianna Taylor. Brianna Taylor. And It just really was a rude awakening and a reminder that Black women in this country are really not protected and cared for. And, you know, this is not a new phenomenon. Um, One of the people that I celebrate in this album is Nina Simone. There's a famous interview where she talks about how one of the promoters didn't pay her. And so she had to show up with a shotgun in order for the man to pay. Do Do you know about this?
0: I think I've heard that story, yeah. <laughs> you it's a, know, it's a famous one.
5: <laughs> the title just suddenly came to me one day. It just hit me and the label, God bless them, at first they were a little bit like, "Geez, like are you sure? That's kind of not a very warm title." And I was like, "Yeah, but it but it's true, you know." And they and they had to agree with that and I'm really glad that it's been really well received just by hearing the title. I've noticed people are are already interested. So, mission accomplished. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, What song are we going to hear?
5: You're going to hear Woman of the Ghetto. It was the first single that we put out on this project. It is a remake uh, uh, sung by the great Marlena Shaw. She's the only woman that I reimagined that is still alive. Um, So hopefully, Marlena, if you're out there, I hope you like this flip. I hope you like it.
0: (laughs) Well, let's hear it. This is uh, Melanie Charles here on Livewire. Her new record is Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women.
5: I was born and raised in the ghetto, I was born and raised in the ghetto, I am a woman of the ghetto, listen to me legislator. do you raise your kids in the ghetto? How do you raise your kids in the ghetto? Feed one child and starve another. Tell me, tell me, let The dead in the ghetto Gentlemen, you're about to hear from the wonderful Miss Brandi Younger on the harp. deep They close their eyes when they wanna sleep You're sitting up there in your ivory tower Sixty stories high Now you may have been in one ghetto But have you lived there at all Places like Watts Detroit Chicago, Harlem, yeah, and I gotta shout out Brooklyn.
0: Of Melanie Charles coming to you live from Bushwick. Ah, full performance, full. Her new album is Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women. Melanie, thank you so much for coming on LiveWire and sharing that with us. That was really incredible.
5: Thank you for having me, Luke. Thank you for having me, Elena.
0: All right, that's going to do it for this special episode of LiveWire. A huge thanks to our guests, Hanif Abdurraqib, Clint Smith, and... Melanie Charles. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer.
2: Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sovchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer.
0: Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. LiveWire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Carol Gabrielli and Vicki Reitenauer of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, visit LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire team. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.